Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. Let's pray. Father, we come to a, a, a book this morning that in some ways is really uh, hard to wrestle with, so we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and uh, um, understanding, Lord, because we want to understand you, uh, who you are, your character, your nature, how you operate in the world, and we want to do that so we can better serve you. So help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We are in a series called Love This Book, uh, but today we come to a book that I think is hard to love. Um, not because it's weird or bizarre or boring. It's none of those. Uh, it's not like the book of Leviticus, which we explored last week, and Paul did an amazing job helping us appreciate a strange book. This book isn't strange. The problem with this book is that in it, God just seems brutal. It is the book of Joshua, and it causes problems, the brutality of God in this book, or at least what God commands the Israelites to do, uh, um, causes problems for people. In fact, Richard Hess, who's an Old Testament professor at Denver Seminary, uh, in his introduction to Joshua, writes this. He says, perhaps the greatest challenge to belief in Israel's and Christianity's God is his apparent brutality in commanding the destruction of the Canaanites. Nowhere does this issue come into sharper focus than in the book of Joshua. We're confronted uh, uh, with God in a way that we don't lock in front. In fact, some people have gone to the book of Joshua and decided that in reality, God is a moral monster. Uh, Dawkins and Hitchens have been arguing that because of what's in this book. Uh, I don't think that's true. So this morning, I want us to wrestle with that, uh, understand a little bit about the book uh, so what we're going to do is talk about some hard questions that come from the book of Joshua, but we also want to look at the passage that they're going to come from, and I don't want us to miss the point of that passage because what that passage is teaching is so fundamental to our lives that we got to grab a hold of it, and I think this passage is the key passage to the book as well. So let me give us some context uh, We've been preaching through the whole Bible. We started with creation, did a couple messages out of Genesis, and then talked about the fall and the rebellion of humankind, Genesis chapter 3. And then God launches his redemption project to win back humanity, and he decides that he's going to work through a man and his family that becomes a nation, Abraham. So he calls Abraham from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is down here in Babylon, uh, and Abraham travels, he's going to travel to the promised land, but he doesn't go straight there because that would be across the desert and he would die. So he follows the fertile crescent up. He goes to a place called Haran and is waylaid there for a bit, but eventually ends up in the promised land. When he's in the promised land, he has a son Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has a whole bunch of sons that become the tribes of Israel. One of them is Joseph, and Joseph is mistreated by his brothers, and as a result, Joseph ends up, he's sold to a caravan, and he ends up in Egypt. Joseph, in Egypt, rises to a place of power, in fact, the most powerful man in Egypt. A, a famine hits the land of Palestine, and as a result, 
the, the 70 members of Abraham's family come down to live in Egypt because they can get food there because Joseph is in power. The family stays in Egypt for 400 years. And, and during that time, it grows into a nation. But they're a nation that is now being oppressed by the Egyptians. They're enslaved because they're immigrants and they're mistreated. Um, so God raises up another man named Moses who's going to bring the people out of Egypt, and that's the story of the Exodus. Uh, Moses, uh, there's the ten plagues, then Moses leads them across the Red Sea into Sinai. They ha hang a hard right and go to actually the Mount of Sinai where God gives them the Ten Commandments and the law. That's what the book, uh, part of the book uh, of Leviticus is about is some of the rules that they were given there. And they enter into this covenant with God. From Sinai, they go to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they're getting ready to enter the promised land. So they send spies into the land, and the spies come back and say, hey, the land is great. It's awesome. But there's a problem. There's giants in the land. And all the spies agree except two, Caleb and Joshua. They say, we should go in, and the rest of the spies say, no, we shouldn't. God gets irritated, and so the people come under his judgment. And all the people of that generation who refuse to go into the land wander around the wilderness for 40 years till everyone in that generation dies except Caleb and Joshua. We pick this story up. The people of Israel are in Moab, the plains of Moab. They're now going to try and enter the, the promised land. Uh, Moses has passed away, and Joshua is their new leader. And that begins the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is commissioned as the new Moses and told that he and the people need to obey the Torah. They, they cross the Jordan at flood stage. A lot of this is the reenactment of what we had seen earlier, right? Joshua is the new Moses. Crossing the Jordan is like crossing the Red Sea. They come into to the land. The men are circumcised. They celebrate the Passover. And now they're ready to engage in battle. And we pick it up in chapter 5. And Joshua is standing... Uh, at a place called Jericho, 5.13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, Jericho is uh, a military outpost. Uh, it's described as a city, but that word for city can describe all kinds of sizes. We, we know that because we're, there's an excavation, a tell, in Israel at the site where Jericho is. And we know it's about 10 acres of land, which is about half the size of the land that... that uh, Waterstone sits on about half of our acreage. That was the size of the city. It's a military fort. It has high walls. Uh, it's to protect people from coming in, protect, to defend against people coming into the land. And, and Joshua's there. He's standing before the walls, and he's trying to figure out, how are we going to do this? I mean, understand, his people have no weapons. They haven't been trained to be soldiers. They have no military experience. They're not battle-hardened. They have to siege this, this fort. They have no siege weapons. And he's thinking, how are we going to do this? Let's go on. He looks up, 
And he saw a man standing in front of him with a a drawn sword in his hand. Now, at this point, Joshua doesn't know that this is a supernatural being. just looks like a human being who's ready for battle. So Joshua goes up, and and the word there describes him confronting him. He went up to the man and asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? In other words, we're going to engage in battle, and you can't be on the sidelines. You either have to be for us or for the Canaanites. Which one are you? And you get the sense that if the guy says, I'm for them, they're going to go at it. But then Joshua gets an answer he didn't expect. The man, the man says, neither. And literally in the Hebrew, it just says, no, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This is no normal human being. This is a supernatural being. Some people think it's an angel of God. Some people think this is a theophany or an appearance of God, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, we're not sure. But, but Joshua, you know, understands that what this guy is saying, look, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Uh, neither. I've come. It's not a matter whether I'm for you or for the Canaanites. It's a matter of, are you for me, the commander of the army of the Lord? And Joshua gets it. He, he fell face down to the ground in reverence, and that word is a word that describes worship. So he begins to worship this, this person. That's why a lot of people think this is pre-incarnate Christ, because only God is to be worshipped. And asks, what message does the Lord have for his servant? He's going to serve him. And then the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What's the deal with the sandals? Well, some people think, well, sandals touch the dirt and are dirty and you're on holy ground and the holy God, you take them off. And that's a possibility. But I think there's something deeper going on here. Your sandals represent your life. It's your journey. It's what, they represent your control and your values and where you're going and your aspirations and your goals. You go no place without your shoes, right? They're critical. And I think what the commander of the army of the Lord is asking Joshua, he says, I want you to surrender to me. And he takes off his shoes and he does. Surrenders to him. But there's the challenge here. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. We're told about the gates of Jericho. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. How, How are we going to defeat this fort and overcome these massive walls? How's that going to happen? Well, we find out that uh, this man has a plan. God has a plan. Verse 2, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city. Joshua was really excited. He's got a plan. He's got a strategy. This will be great. Here it is. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets or ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a loud blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. And Joshua's going, wow. (laughs) Are you sure about this? I mean, what kind of plan is this? This is absolutely absurd. Absurd. You can march around a city as many times as you want and shout as loud as you can. That doesn't make walls fall down. But Joshua decides to go with it. 
right? He's worshiped this guy. He's going to serve this guy. He asked him, what, what do you have for me? He's given him he's right. Okay, we'll do it. And they do. They, they march around. They get up early, march once around the city, blow the horns. Next day, get up early, march around the city, blow the horns. Next day, seven, six days, they do that. Seventh day, jumping down to verse, verse 16. On the seventh day, it's a little different. They're going to go around it seven times. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on the day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Now, this word devoted is the Hebrew word haram, and it refers to what is known as the ban. Okay? And it was a cultural practice in those days that you would uh, dedicate things to your God. And those things that you dedicated to God, would, if they were valuable like gold or silver, you would put them in his temple or you would utterly destroy them. That's how you gave them to God. So as animals, you destroy them. If it was people, you would destroy them. And he's saying here that everything in the city of Jericho is to, to be dedicated, devoted to the Lord. Then it goes on, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid, hid the spies we sent. Earlier, they had sent in spies to investigate Jericho and the land, and, and the people of the king of Jericho heard about them, and they were in danger. So Rahab took them in and hid them. And the reason she did that is she had become a believer in Yahweh, so she protected the spies. And because she has done that and believe, a believer in Yahweh, she's spared and her family is spared, okay? Uh, it goes on, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will, not be, you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. It's setting up chapter 7 because in chapter 7 we find out a man named Achan actually takes part of the plunder, some of the things devoted to God because they're valuable, and he hides them in his tent and the whole camp comes under judgment and eventually Achan and his whole family are judged and just destroyed by God. Okay, so that's setting that up. Verse 19. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, Young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. It's that last verse um, that begins to cause us problems. And as you go through the book of Joshua, you find this, this notion uh, being a, of the ban being applied again and again. So I think before we can talk about what the text is trying to teach us, we have to wrestle with this idea of the band and things being devoted to the Lord because it does seem that God is inconsistent with himself. How can God command such a thing if he's a God of compassion and love, especially if it involves non-combatants 
and uh, children. Now, I want to tell you, I'm just going to be honest, what I'm going to say this morning will not satisfy you completely. Um, because I'm not sure there is a perfect answer to this question. So you're going to leave with a bit of discomfort. Um, and this, this issue has caused discomfort throughout history for believers. Origen, one of the church fathers, uh, uh, felt that, you know, followers of Christ are to be peace lovers. So this can't be what God was commanding. And took this book as an allegory and preached it that way. It, that it just, none of it, anything in Joshua ever happened from his perspective. And remember when I was in college, I came home, and uh, the college group I was part of was taught by a man named Phil Mitchell, who brilliant, teacher at CCU now, uh, one of my mentors, is going through the book of Joshua, and he's trying to wrestle with this question uh, of why this was okay for God to do. And I remember leaving there thinking, I don't know, Phil, it seems like you're giving God a pass. Here's the truth, folks. There are going to be things about God we do not understand, right? Uh, ultimately, he does not answer to us. We answer to him. And to be quite honest with you, if there is nothing in your understanding about God that disturbs you, then you've probably domesticated him, him neutralized him. You're probably off a bit because God is other. God is mysterious. God is beyond us. God is infinite. What makes us think in our smallness, we'll get it all. At some point, we got to let God be God, whether we like it or not. It doesn't mean we give God a pass, but it means we try to put things in the proper perspective. So let me ask three troubling questions uh, and at least wrestle with them a bit. The first question is, what right, what right did Israel have to the land in the first place? I mean, this is the Canaanites. Well, first of all, understand the purpose of the land. The land was not an ultimate end or the goal itself. It was simply a means to achieve the end or the mission of God, which was to bless the world. The land was given to Israel so Israel could create a society, a community that lived under the covenant of God so that they could show the world that if you were a community that lived under the covenant of God, this is what it looked like. They were to be a lighthouse in a sense that attracted people to God and his ways and, and his covenant. So the land was a means to an end, not the end. Second, the land is God's land. And the Canaanites, from one perspective, are simply squatters. After all, God is the creator of the universe and the world, uh, so the land is his, and he can do what he chooses to do with the land. That said, even so, God respected the Canaanites' presence in the land. It's not until the Canaanites forfeit their privilege to be in the land because of their sin that they are driven out. God just doesn't come and say, okay, you've been living here, but I want it now for my people. I'm going to kick you out. Now, he respects their right to, to be there, but they forfeit that right. Genesis 15, 16 says this. Uh, um, God is talking to Abraham and, and tells Abraham that his descendants will not receive the land until the sins 
of the Amorites, which is one of the Canaanite tribes, had reached its full measure. In, in other words, it's not Israel's right to the land, but the Canaanite sin that results in them being driven out. They forfeit the land. God just doesn't take it so the Israelites can have it. Now here's the, the, the last thing to realize about the land. This is really important. Um, the land does not belong to Israel. The land never has belonged to Israel. The land is God's, was always God's, and will always be God's. And you say, well, wait, I, th I thought he gave it to Israel. Well, look at Leviticus 25, verse 23. It says there that the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, God is speaking. The land is mine, and you, he's speaking to the Israelites, you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. <laughs> Whose land is Palestine? It's not the Palestinians, it's not Israel's, it's not the United Nations, it's not the Arabs, it's God's. Always has been God's, always will be God's. It's his. Now I'm going to say something some of you will not like. All right? Political Israel today is not equivalent to biblical Israel. All right? Just as Rome today is not equivalent to biblical Rome. Biblical Israel was a theocracy that lived under the covenant, under God's jurisdiction. Political Israel today is a secular state. It does not live under the covenant. It is not God's people. It is not equivalent to, to biblical Israel. Just not. And because they're not equivalent to biblical Israel, they don't have a particular right to the land. It's illegitimate to argue, well, it was ours. Well, it was, never was yours. So you can't use the book of Joshua as a justification for Israel taking the land from the Palestinians. The Palestinians aren't under God's judgment. They're not like the Canaanites. God respected the Canaanites' right to be there. He respects the Palestinians' right to be there. And it's unjust for you to take somebody's land just because you want to argue you have a historical right to it, which you don't have because you're not biblical Israel. And if you even were biblical Israel, I'm not sure the land would be yours. Right? Because the promises for Israel, will be, some of them will be fulfilled in a physical way in the future, but most of them are fulfilled in the church. So don't misapply the scriptures in a way that's not legitimate. If you don't like what I'm saying, email Larry. <laughs> I love not being a senior pastor. <laughs> okay. Second question. That's the land. How could God command total destruction? Well, remember, Jericho and I are military outposts. They're small. They're mostly soldiers. The other battles that Israel are going to have are typically in response to Israel being attacked. And if they were attacking a city, most of the non-combatants would have fled before that battle even begun. Okay? But the key thing to understand that justifies this total destruction is that this is an act of judgment and protection. 
This is not an act of ethnic cleansing or genocide. The ban was never based on ethnicity or race. And the book of Joshua is very clear about this, right? From the beginning, Rahab, who is a Canaanite, it doesn't matter that she's a Canaanite. She becomes a follower of Yahweh, and she's spared. Later on in the book, the Gibeonites, part of the Canaanites, decide they want to follow Israel and be part of the covenant and follow God. They're spared. The people who are not spared are the ones who, who don't want to follow God and stay in their sin. And even the Jews who, who, who break the covenant are not spared. Achan gets destroyed. So this does not have to do with race or ethnicity. They're not trying to exterminate the Canaanites. They're not following the Canaanites into the hills and trying to kill every last one of them. They're trying to purge them from the cities so that they dispossess them from their national state and in the end destroy their religion. Why? Because the Canaanite culture and society was absolutely depraved and vile. It was justified judgment. Look at Deuteronomy 9.4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. As if it was about you, Israel. No. It's on account of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is going to drive them out. The Canaanites were morally corrupt and deserving of judgment. We, we have this notion, oh, they were good, innocent people. That is not what the Canaanite culture was like. Even if you can look at the biblical record, you can look at ancient Near East record of these people as well. It, it was depraved, not only idolatry, but ritualized prostitution, incest, ran rampant in their culture. Bestiality, which was sex with animals, was rampant in their culture. And worst of all, child sacrifice was, was running wild in their culture. And God waited 400 years trying to be patient with him and finally had enough. So now Israel becomes the instrument of judgment. He's trying to put an end to this religion and destroy this culture and dispossess them of their land because of their sin. And if they would turn and follow God, they'd, they'd be protected. And that, that's part of it. Not only was it to judge them, but to protect the Israelites. Because God's goal is to produce this holy people that live under his covenant. And he knows if they allow the Canaanites to stay, the Canaanites will compromise them. They'll intermarry. They'll take on those practices. They'll end up just like the Canaanites. Look at Leviticus 18. We don't have time to read through it. But God is saying, look, you, you can't fall into the same kind of trap where you're committing incense and bestiality and child sacrifice. <laughs> can't happen. Now, note. Over the course of Israel's history, far more Israelites feel the hand of God's wrath than this generation of Canaanites. It's true. So it's judgment and protection. Second, it was limited, this notion of the ban was limited to this time and place and not the general practice uh, of Israel at war. This is, is to be used against seven nations who are in the land at this time. And if you go to Deuteronomy 20, typically Israel was to make an offer of peace, and then if the offer of peace was rejected, then the battle was on. And what this means, and this is really important, hear me very clearly, you cannot use these chapters to justify killing anyone or expelling anyone from their land, either as a kind of manifest destiny, which is what we did in this nation, 
Or even today, Israel justifying kicking out the Palestinians. That's an injustice. Now, the Palestinians uh, are, are wrong to create terrorism and blow things up. That's wrong. But they have a legitimate gripe with Israel because Israel is invading the land that is in their possession and saying, well, God gave it to us. No, it was not your land. God did not give it to you. God gave it to no one. It's his. And the only reason the Canaanites got kicked out is because they forfeited their right to the land because of their sin. I don't think that's true of the Palestinians. Okay. Three. The book of Joshua, and some of you are not going to like this either, okay? <laughs> the, the book of Joshua uses exaggeration and hyperbole. It is battle literature. Now, here's the thing. We come to the scriptures, and we want to read the books what, like we want to read them. And we want to say, I go to Joshua, and it's just straightforward history. The only problem is that's not how the author of Joshua wrote the book. And you can look at other literature that day. He wrote it as propaganda to bolster the people that they were doing these great things. And he exaggerates all kinds of stuff. Deuteronomy 7, they say, go in and destroy all the people. Uses this word ban. And then God explains in that chapter that they're not to intermarry and they're not to, they're not to form treaties. And you're thinking, wait, wait a second, if you're destroying all of them and annihilating all of them, how are you intermarrying and, and making treaties? And you go, oh, this, he's exaggerating. And then you see that in the book of Joshua itself. In Joshua chapter 10, it says that they totally destroyed the cities of Eglon and Hebron and Debur, and there were no survivors. They just decimated them. But then you get over to Joshua 15, and you find out that all three of those places are still inhabited by Canaanites. And you're going, uh, is this writer an idiot? No, the guy's not an idiot. He's just not writing straightforward history. He's writing battle literature, propaganda. You say, well, that's not right. We don't do that. Well, yeah, we do. The victors always write history. And, and let me give you an example. We do it with sports, right? Broncos probably the Oakland. We win. What do we say? Oh, we killed them. We annihilated them. There was no one left standing on the whole field. And next week, the Raiders are playing again. Now, if someone a hundred years from now reads that, they're going to go, these guys were idiots. No. It's sports, it's sports propaganda. It's, it's just how we talk about it, right, as fans. Well, this is battle literature. Now, if you want to wrestle with that a little more, um, go to the Bible Project. They have a bunch of small videos on how to read the Bible that are really helpful, and we'll talk about reading different styles and genres of literature, and they'll talk about this kind of thing. And then you can listen to some of their podcasts. Um, not saying the Bible is not authoritative. I'm not saying it's, uh, there's errors in it. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying you have to read Scripture according to how it was intended to be read. And if the author of Scripture wants to write a piece of battle literature and propaganda, then you have to read it that way. 
Third, how does this ban fit with Jesus and his call to love your enemies? I want you to hang with me here for a moment because I want you to think a little more deeply about Jesus' call to love your enemies. Understand, there is a difference between a personal ethic, a community ethic, a state ethic, and God as judge of the universe ethic. And the responsibilities and prerogatives vary for each one. Right? The state can lock people up and imprison them. You and I cannot do that. Why? Because that authority is not given to us. That is given to a different institution. We don't have that right. That's why in Romans 12 it says, do not take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. What is it saying? He said, our, our ethic is to love others. But God, at times, will take revenge because not only is he loving and compassionate, but he's holy and just. And in fact, I would argue he has to institute his justice. And and you see this in all kinds of places. Take your HOA. Your HOA has authority on zoning and building issues, right? Right? They can tell you, don't build that shed. And if you build that shed, they can fine you or make you tear it down. But they can't lock you up. Right? Why? Because they don't have that authority. So your community HO has some authority, and that controls their ethic, and the state has other. That's why in Romans chapter 13, it says the state has the right to, to wield the sword. It has the right to institute justice. And here's the thing. God's justice, I believe, actually flows out of his love. There is a tension between justice and love. But I think it's because God loves that he manifests his wrath against injustice. And in fact, if he didn't, it would be unloving. If I see someone being abused and oppressed, or the state does or God does, what is his responsibility in how he should treat the oppressor? should stop it. And that oppressor then has to face the consequences of his sin. Let's put this on the state level. Say somebody kills two or three people and those, the guy who did that comes before the judge and the judge says, well, I know you did this and that was horrendous and that was evil, but I'm going to love my enemy, so I'm going to let you go. We would be up in arms because the state has a responsibility to manifest our love for the, peop- the victims. And part of manifesting the love for the victims is to see that justice is served for those who committed the crime. Make sense? So this isn't a violation of love your enemies. This is God enacting his holiness and his justice, which results in judgment. And here's the thing, folks. Judgment is always the other side of justice. God has to react to those harming others and mistreating them. Because he is a God of love, he has to react by instituting justice and judgment. These issues, 
raise all kinds of problems for us, and they make us uncomfortable. They challenge our worldview, and I think they challenge our understanding of the nature and character of God. And part of it is this notion of God's holiness. We are not comfortable with God's holiness and the implication it brings in terms of how he interacts with his world. We are enamored with his love and we think very little about his holiness. We like the loving and the helping God, not the holy God. And as a result, we neuter and domesticate God and make him into something more to our liking. We don't understand the depth of his holiness, the radical nature of it, the mystery, the incredible demand it has. But, but folks, there is this reality. The holiness of God should be a scary thing. And we don't like it. We don't like the fact that the guy reaches out and touches the ark and is zapped dead. We don't like the fact that the high priest goes into the holy of holies and has to have a rope on his ankle because if he screws up, he's going to die and they're going to have to haul him out. We don't like it in the next chapter that Achan and his whole family are annihilated. But at some point, we have to get over it because that is who God is. There is this notion of his holiness that should scare the bejeebers out of us. And part of it does is because we know we're sinful. And that's the point. We don't stand before God because we're righteous. We only stand before God because Jesus has intervened. He's the Holy One who has absorbed our sin and taken its penalty. So when we stand before God, He sees us in the righteousness and the holy of Christ. Otherwise, we'd be annihilated too. See, here's the key thing to ponder. Either we mold our view of God to his reality or we try and mold him to what we would like him to be. And if we mold him to what we'd like him to be, the word for that is idolatry. Okay, if you give me five more minutes, I want to talk about the point of this, this text. It's back in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Joshua has this encounter with this divine being and, and says, whose side are you on? And the divine being says, neither. You're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question, Joshua. Let me get your perspective, give you the, the right perspective. This is not your battle. This is not your agenda. This mission is mine. This is not about you and blessing you and giving you land. This victory is not yours, it's mine. It's not whose side I am on, it's whether or not you're on my side. This is the commander of the Lord's army and he has now come. And Joshua gets it. So he responds with worship and offering his service and total surrender. I remember the story of a woman who was asked when she became a, asked when she became a Christian. And she responded, she said, well, I'm not sure. Do you, want me, do you want to know when I subscribed to Christianity, when I took a class, when I learned about the church, and I said, yes, I'm a Christian and got baptized and all that? Or do you want me to tell you about the time when I realized one day, and this hit me like a, a thunderbolt, when I realized if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything about my life. If Jesus is who he says he is, that means not a single corner of my life can belong to me. 
If Jesus is who he says he is, then everything has to belong to him. It's all about him, not me. I don't know when that lady became a believer, but the day she understood he was everything, that's the day she heard God say, no, neither. Take off your shoes. Here's the key point. Here's the fundamental thing we have to learn. Life is not about us. It's about him and furthering his kingdom. But here's the problem. When we come to God, we typically come to him because we have a desperate need in our lives. We are guilty or ashamed and we need forgiveness. We're in a terrible situation and we need help. We have relationship problems or are lonely. We lack meaning or significance and we want meaning or we feel unloved and we want God to love us. We come to God because we have a need. And it's about us. And God graciously enters our lives and dresses our most pressing need. But we all come to God that way. But that creates a danger for us. Creates a danger that we might misunderstand and think that God is simply a nice add-on or a nice accessory or a nice addition or a great assistant to help me pursue my success and my agenda. It's kind of like my genie in the bottle. When I get in trouble, I can rub it and he'll come to my rescue. And although we, quite honestly, start our Christian walk there, we, we cannot stay there. If we do, then there's something fundamentally wrong at the foundation of our faith. Let me put it in perspective for you just a moment. If the distance between Earth and the sun is 96 million miles, and we assume that that's a thickness of a piece of paper, then the distance from Earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The universe is huge. The diameter of our little galaxy, well, that would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a tiny speck of the universe. And Hebrews 1 says that Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. In other words, he holds this whole thing together with his little pinky. Now let me ask you, do you ask somebody like that to come into your life and be your assistant? The incredible thing is he does not take note of us. The incredible thing is he does take note of us and he does let us participate in his cosmic purpose. It's amazing. Look, folks, life is about him. You know, people ask me, what am I learning from our experience, Barb and mine, and... and (laughs) tell him, I, I'm not sure, I, I, I do know this, that he's God and I'm not, and it's not about us. I don't understand it. I don't know why it's going on. I don't have any answers. But all I do know is he's still God. It wasn't about us, never has been about us, never will be about us.
That's all I know. It's about him. Look, it's, life is not about your job or your health or your success or your advancement or your career or your kids or your happiness. Life is all about him and his, his kingdom. And that's foundational. And if we get that, <laughs> we, we get perhaps the most important thing. 